Sandra was 45 years old and fit as a fiddle when she noticed that her urine was purple. Her doctor gave her a course of antibiotics, thinking that it was an infection, but the symptoms continued. Facial hair starts to grow afterwards, and a blister starts to form on her hand. After initially ignoring it, she realised that the blister was getting bigger, would not heal, and was throbbing. Within a couple of weeks of returning from her holidays, both hands were throbbing painfully, and clusters of blisters were grouping all over her hands. It got to the stage that while driving, the heat coming through the windscreen caused terrible pain in her hands, which were now a mess, and her skin had become very fragile. The smallest knot and the skin ripped. Then marks started to appear on her face and feet. Sandra was in horrible pain. Eventually, Sandra was able to see a group of specialists who diagnosed her with Porphyria cutanea tarda. This is a true story with symptoms that have influenced many stories that can be heard this Halloween. There are stories of poor patients with hair covering their faces and their eyes glowing, with pain so severe that as little sunlight as that reflected by the full moon can cause them to scream. Welcome to Genetic Drift, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the world of genetic diseases. Happy Halloween. I'm Anthony. And I'm Juliet. Are you keeping in my awoo? Well, now that you've asked, you've kind of forced me to. <laughs> but yeah, so this episode is being released on Halloween night. Yeah, Halloween! And the reason is that this condition that we're covering has had a big influence on how we in the 20 and 21st century have viewed certain mythological creatures. Like? The vampire and the werewolf. Oh, yeah! So, do you know what we're covering today? You said it was... Porf... Porf... Porphyria. Porphyria. Yes. Mm -hmm. So this is sometimes referred to as vampire disease. Do not say that to an actual patient. No, don't think they'd appreciate it. Yeah, a little bit distasteful. But we are going to be covering, in general, Porphyria, but mostly the um, Porphyria cutanea tarda, or PCT, which is the most common type of Porphyria. Okay. So what is it? So PCT is a rare disorder that's characterized by painful, blistering skin lesions that develop on sun-exposed skin. So you become very scent photosensitive to the point where even a little bit of sunlight can be really painful. And in very severe cases, as I said, a full moon can actually reflect enough UV to cause pain. And the affected skin becomes really fragile, it peels and it blisters under mild trauma, and it can start tearing away. Like having a terrible sunburn all the time? Like having the worst sunburn. Oh. Just a little bit of light. So, yeah, and it's caused by... Uh, so the porphyria illnesses are caused by a buildup of a group of chemical of chemicals known as porphyrins. Don't worry, I'm going to break this down for you. Okay. So currently, porphyrins just sounds like porpoises. So is my body going to be full of porpoises? Sadly, not. Um, That'd be a lovely image, but that's too nice for Halloween. <laughs> okay. What are porphyrins? So, remember how I said that hemoglobin carries oxygen around? Yeah. In your blood. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so, a shortage of hemoglobin normally causes anemia. Yeah, and anemia is where you don't have enough oxygen. Reaching the tissues, yes. Yeah. So, for porphyria, what happens is in the steps of making hemoglobin, hemoglobin has three components. You have heme, which is a chemical that has iron in it, and that's what actually carries the oxygen. And then you have two different types of globin proteins, which are what allow your cells to actually transport the entire package. So think of the globins kind of like as oven mitts, 
so that they so that your cells can actually handle the oxygen. Okay. Now, to make heme actually requires multiple se- steps of chemical changes. So you start off with one chemical, you make this change, and then you make another change, and then another change, kind of like going along a conveyor belt. Okay, scary science, yeah. Along a few of those stages, these chemicals all come under an umbrella term called porphyrins. In porphyria, you have some dysfunction, depending on the type of porphyria you have, that means that you can't go from one of those porphyrins to the next one in the step, which means that you eventually can't make enough heme. Okay, so you end up super anemic. And because your body goes, oh, we don't have enough heme, we need to make more building blocks. So they end up making more porphyrins, and you end up with too many many porphyrins in your bloodstream. And it's the buildup of porphyrins that cause these symptoms, because porphyrins have very weird traits. Okay, that makes sense, I think. So with PCT, for example, the porphyrin is known as uroporphyrinogen 3, and it can't go to the next step, and it builds up in the bloodstream. Now, this, alongside other porphyrins, when it's exposed to UV, it actually releases heat. What? Yeah. And that is part of the reason why there is such photosensitivity, because your blood basically starts to get hotter and hotter when you are exposed to sunlight. And it's like you're being cooked. What? So it's really painful. So is that like... So any blood that's near the surface of your skin, when the skin is in the sunlight, just starts... Heating up. Your blood is boiling? Basically, yeah. What? <laughs> so imagine if, if you, as soon as you put your hand out in the sun, it, your hand started cooking. That's basically what happens in that situation, which would mean you'd stay out of the bloody sun. Yeah. So as a result, this causes some very interesting symptoms. Besides cooking alive. Yeah. Okay, like what? So typically, these don't actually start until mid to late adulthood. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. Um... We'll go into a little bit later why, but okay. anemia is a very common symptom because you're not making enough heme, and therefore your hemoglobin's incomplete, so anemia. Photosensitivity, as I said, you know, your skin blisters and peels in the sunlight, uh, you end up with extremely fragile skin. Again, if, you're, if, if the skin's basically being cooked, it's kind of, you know, it's becoming a lot more fragile, so even bumps and, like, little bumps and scratches can become wounds that really struggle to heal. Can you avoid it? Ha- avoid this happening to your skin by just like covering up? To some extent, yeah. Avoiding sunlight is one simple solution to some of the problems. However, your skin can still become fragile over time. Uh, so when we, um, I'll go into what treatments there are in a little bit, but there's still quite a few more symptoms to cover, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, so eventually scarring can develop on the affected skin, and this can either cause hyperpigmentation, where the skin cells become really dark, or it can actually cause the pigmentation to fade, so you can become super pale. So you can have this sort of thing where people end up with their skin coming back, pulling back, and becoming really pale because of the damage that's been done by the porphyrins in the sunlight, and kind of getting that almost what you think of as a Nosferatu-style appearance, because the skin's pulling back against their face, and it's pale. I have no idea what that means. Uh, so Nosferatu is a 20th century depiction of a vampire. Oh. The, the sort of the bald one with the uh, sharp pointed ears. Nope, but okay. <laughs> so again, you can see how these symptoms started shaping people, like particularly in the 20th century, the view of vampirism. Yeah. What also happens is, so something that's called milia form. And what these are, are they're like small bumps in the skin with these like really distinct white heads on them. Like pimples? Kind of, more like boils, like, you know, something more painful. Okay. And then you can also get what's called hypertrichosis. No idea what that means. So, oh, hair. Lots and lots of hair. Yes. It typically grows in the face. Like a werewolf. Again, this is potentially influenced some of our views of the werewolf in modern times. Because so, so that can happen. You also end up, in some cases of PCT, with the skin in affected areas becoming thickened and hardened. And 
it's like almost like kind of scarry and scaly. And this is known as pseudosclerosis, so kind of like half scarring. And uh, pseudosclerosis in individuals with uh, PCT kind of appears in these sort of scattered, waxy, hardened patches of skin. So, you know, it starts making the skin look like it's almost stony or like almost zombie-like in some ways. So, again, with some of this, I think what's happened is people look at the condition and then look back at the mythology and make the connections. But it is interesting to see how this one condition has had so many connections to our modern view on certain mythologies. Yeah. There's more. Okay. You So because porphyrins are iron-containing chemicals, you often end up with a buildup of iron in the liver. Okay. Which is toxic. If you have too much iron in the liver, it's, it's, it's just poisonous. It's like ODing. Oh. So this can cause scarring of the liver. It can cause damage, uh, damage to the liver, um, fat buildup there, uh, hepatotoxicity, which just means poisoning of the liver. And those can then also cause uh, psychological effects because once you cause liver damage and you have uh, basically you're not controlling the amounts of enzymes or toxins in your body as effectively, you can end up suffering conditions like psychosis. Liver damage can give psychosis? Yes. I, I've Firsthand, I've been stuck in a ward with someone who had uh, alcoholism-induced liver failure, which then caused them to have a psychotic break. And it was scary. Oh my goodness. So this can, if, 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 it, if it gets to the uh, hepatic stage, which is rarer in PCT, it's scary. It can be very scary. A lot of patients have what's called uh, wine red or purple urine. And that's where the name porphyria actually comes from, because the Greek word porphyra? Purple. Yeah. So purple pee. Honestly, that sounds quite exciting. And it's the porphyrins are what make the urine purple. Rainbow pee sounds really fun. Much more exciting than boring yellow. But what's also freaky is that some porphyrins can fluoresce. So like glow in the dark? Glow in the dark. So if you put a bit of light on them, they basically, basically become energized. So then when you turn the lights off, they release some of that energy as light. Okay. And this can be a blood red color when it fluoresces. And these can accumulate in your saliva, your urine, and the whites of your eyes. <gasps> red eyes? So, Glow-in-the-dark red eyes. Yes. So there are instances where it is possible that someone has trichosis, so a hairy uh, hypertrichosis, so a hairy face, the saliva is fluorescing, blood red, so they have blood red teeth and eyes. They are hiding from the sunlight because of the pain it causes, but a full moon, because they have severe enough symptoms, a full moon is reflecting enough ultraviolet light to cause them pain. So you can see how some people, looking at that as a possibility, have gone, has this influenced the mythology of the werewolf? This is the best episode ever, and It's a really interesting condition. It's obviously not great for people who live with it, but compared to some of these other conditions, we actually manage it relatively well. Oh, yay. Tell me about that. Well, I think first we should probably go on how to diagnose it. So, unfortunately, diagnosis can be difficult because it's an uncommon condition, so a lot of doctors never see it. So that is, that's one thing to bear in mind. Yeah, but if I was in med school and learned about the werewolf or the vampire sickness, I would remember it. Yes, definitely. So, obviously, diagnosis typically is based off symptoms. There are some fairly characteristic symptoms. Urine sample is obviously a good way to go. If someone's having an attack, their urine might be purple, or their urine might change colour when exposed to sunlight, or it might fluoresce with exposed to UV. And Think about all the prank opportunities of having glow-in-the-dark pee. I, I, something tells me that that humour's probably lost on patients. Yeah. They're, they've got more serious issues, but I'm sure that there'll, there'll be a couple people that take it in their stride and mess with their friends. A detailed patient history is obviously important to diagnose someone. You want to you see if this is a one-off or it's happened multiple times or if it's continuous, particularly for PCT where it's a, it's a chronic porphyria 
some cases you have what's called acute intermittent porphyria. So you just have every now and then you have attacks of porphyria. Oh. There, so yeah, there are different types of porphyria, and they're triggered. They they can be kind of triggered in different ways, or they can be caused by different ways. You then take a variety of specialized tests to make sure that someone is porphyric. So blood tests to measure the level of those porphyrins. So we know what those porphyrin chemicals are. So we measure how much of there is in your blood, and if it's above a certain amount, would be uh, doctors would go, yeah, you've got porphyria. They wouldn't necessarily be able to say what specific porphyria based on that blood on that blood test, but they'd then do other tests as well. Urine tests as well to check for porphyrin in the uh, blood. Yeah. Uh, in the urine, sorry. So check for porphyrin in the urine. Yeah. Uh, um, because it's not always going to be you look at it and it's purple. Not everyone has purple pee. It's, it's a relatively common symptom, but it's not every instance. And uh, genetic screening. Okay. However. For a PCT, that only works on 20% of cases. How can it only work for 20%? It's weird. There are three subtypes. But how did they not all show up in the genes? This is a genetic de- diseases podcast, Ant. What are you playing at? <laughs> so porphyria is quite, you know, like, to some extent, it's pretty poorly understood. And we'll get in, and we'll get into that in a moment because that, that requires a little bit more explanation. Okay, so what's the outlook for patients with this? Well, good thing is, at least now, typically, the life expectancy is completely normal. Yay! We can manage this pretty well. Uh, so for someone with PCT, uh, the common forms of treatment that you use is uh, bloodletting, so phlebotomy. What? Being... Like, like leeches? Well, we'd bring in a phlebotomist. So this is, like, the one thing where leeches would have helped? Remember when we covered hemochromatosis and that also had blood left? Okay, like the two things. But the thing is, hemochromatosis is sometimes a trigger for porphyria. Can't remember what hemochromatosis did. Build up of iron in the blood. Oh, okay. So same kind of thing. Yeah, you can end up with too much iron from porphyria. You can end up with too much iron from hemochromatosis. So they... So, so, so sometimes you just do some bloodletting to lower your blood iron levels. So all those leeches they used to use actually helped with this one? For this one, yes. Amazing. For a lot of health conditions, no. <laughs> okay, so that gets rid of the excess iron from your blood. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't help the anemia, does it? <laughs> no, no. Um, so... The thing with uh, a lot of porphyrias are that they don't completely stop the production of heme, but they make them less functional. So if you imagine instead of, uh, so if, let's just call it step four to step five or something like that. If that's the bit where it's faulty, instead of it being like step four never turns to step five, it'll be like half as many of them turn. So you end up with less heme but you still have maybe enough in a lot of cases to still be okay. So a lot of patients don't necessarily need heme treatment. The more severe cases do, though. Okay. And heme analogues are what people can get given. So they, so they are chemicals that closely resemble heme. The reason they'll be analogues is because you can patent them if you've made them yourself rather than them being naturally occurring chemicals. So you just give people the right bit of blood? Yeah, you give them like the final stage. Okay. They can then turn into hemoglobin. Uh, it's rare. Why wouldn't you just give them hemoglobin? Uh, because everything else works fine anyway. Okay. Um, but so, what do you do to get rid of all the extra porphyrin running around the system? Chloroquine. Like chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. Like that stuff Trump was on about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know the thing that lots of people that. Getting scared about coronavirus started taking away from patients that actually needed it. Well, porphyric patients need it. Low doses compared to what you'd use for malaria or, um, or maybe what you'd use for lupus kind of doses. But low, low doses of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine actually help the body remove excess porphyrins. Uh, porphyrins. So your body is already able to get rid of the extra porphyrins because it's always cleaning the blood. To some extent, yes. And it's just so much that it needs help. Okay. 
other thing I should say with the He-Man Lomps, I'm just going back to that one for a moment, is that it's rarely given in PCT cases, but it is given more frequently in other Porphyria cases. Okay. Interestingly, one way of getting yourself heme is by consumption of blood. Oh my god. Yeah. Drinking blood? Yes, because heme is stable through your digestive system. So if you have fresh blood, you can consume heme and take it into your system. I would assume that you probably have to take mammalian blood of some sort because they have the same sort of uh, blood pigment system as us, whilst fish might have hemocyanin or something like that. So, you know, you'd stick to mammalian and would encourage not human, but... But you could drink human blood and feel better. Yeah. What? Yeah, you, see, you see all the links that people then make when looking at this. So did people used to do this? Did they used to go drink some blood to feel better? How do you even make that link? How do you go, I feel kind of bad. I'm going to try drinking blood. Well, I, I think a lot of a lot of traditional dishes in a lot of cultures make use of blood. Mm. So black pudding, blood sausages, coagulated blood balls in uh, Sichuan cooking... A lot of uh, a lot of cultures have a way of making use of blood yeah. from an animal, and it might be that in some cases, I, I wasn't able to find anything specifically that said how how people or cultures work this out, and it's probably because of how rare the cases are that they worked out in some, that in some cases people worked out this made them better, but it could also be that in some cases people have just gone well. We now know heme makes you feel better. And some people may have drank blood for this reason. Okay. That's so cool. So we don't know which way round the information went. Yeah. So, so interesting, isn't it? Vampires! So it's like vampires, werewolves, and zombies can all... You can all see how the way we view them now can be influenced by Porphyria. Yeah. Was Porphyria even common? No, it's not particularly common. So, I'll, um, the prevalence of Porphyria, so for PCT, which is the most common one, it's about 1 in 10,000 people. Pretty rare. Yeah. Yeah, and I think for the general group of Porphyria, so if you cluster all of them together, it's 5 in 100,000. Very, very rare. Yeah. And ones such as, uh, there's one called, uh, Verigrade Porphyria, which is like the most hereditary one, is one in a million. Whoa. So Porphyria is not common. Okay. We have, so we understand how, I understand what Porphyria is now. What type of genetic disease is it? So with this one, I'm going to break it down just with PCT, because, as I said, there are multiple porphyrias. PCT is a weird one, as are quite a few porphyrias. This sounds complicated already. So PCT comes under three subtypes. Oh no. You have type 1, which is called sporadic. So it's random, we have no idea why or what's linked to it, and there's no family history and people who get it. Surprise porphyria. Yes. And Why do we call things sporadic instead of surprise? Because it would be very awkward for a doctor to say surprise to their patient. <laughs> surprise! Like, you might be a vampire? I'll be honest. I much preferred being told I had idiopathic Crohn's than if, than if I'd been told I had surprise Crohn's. I think surprise Crohn's sounds much more fun. Not when you're the patient. Yeah, yeah. But just under 80% of PCT cases are sporadic. So most of them? Yeah. Okay. The second type is called familial. So I presume it gets passed down. Yes, and this is the predominantly genetic one. So about 20% of cases are familial, and they are autosomal dominant. Okay. Do you remember what autosomal dominant is? You only need it from one parent, and it's not sex-linked. Yes. Woo. So, weirdly, though, 
and this is a bit like with uh, hemochromatosis as well, mutation does not guarantee symptoms, but instead leaves someone prone to the condition. And the reason for this is because it's a dominant mutation, but what it does is it actually makes the enzyme less functional rather than completely functionless. Okay, what would happen if it was completely functionless? Then everyone who inherited it would definitely get symptoms. But, yeah, but... Because you wouldn't be able to get to that next stage, so you'd have very severe porphyria. I'm obviously going to have to break down what this uh, mutation is for you a little bit. Oh no, I am scared. It already sounds too complicated. So the gene affected in familial cases is called Urod. U-R-O-D. Wait, wait. So is this already a different gene than it is affected in spontaneous cases? Spontaneous, they don't know it's affected. What? I know. It's, it's, as I said, this, this is a complicated condition. And I'm just trying to make it as simple as possible here. Okay, I'm upset by the fact we don't even know, but we do know the gene for familial. Yeah, but for the familial one, the, this, this, uh, gene makes an enzyme that converts the, uh, porphyrin, which is called uroporphyrinogen 3, into the next step on the process of making heme. Okay. Now, in familial cases, what happens is that that becomes less functional, so you start transferring less of that uroporphyrinogen 3 into the next step, which means that you kind of slow down the process of making heme, so you will eventually make enough heme, but by the time you've done that, you've overloaded your system with this porphyrinogen, yeah. uroporphyrinogen 3. And for that reason, in some cases, if the if the body is able to compensate well enough for it, someone may not get symptoms. Oh, so you can kind of have porphyria, but not really have it. Yeah. Okay. So stealth porphyria. <laughs> so that's that's a that's a type two, and then type three is extremely rare. So you're looking at maybe a fraction of percent of all PCT cases. So of that one in ten thousand, maybe like. One in 10,000 of them. Okay, what is it? So, it's inherited by unknown means. So what? There's family records to show that people inherit this form of PCT, but then when they look at the actual, this urod gene, it's the same as the rest of the population. It's, it's what you'd call wild type. What? So they don't know what the mutation is, but it causes... But it's inherited in the same way as familial ones. They can't just check which gene their parent had that was weird? Well, so the problem is that this is so rare that to do enough family studies for these comparisons is really difficult. So we have surprise porphyria, familial, and... Mystery. Mystery. <laughs> yeah. Okay, mystery porphyria. Yeah. So it makes the whole um, genetics of this one very confusing. Adequately spooky. Very mysterious. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, okay. I have a question. Why doesn't porphyria show up until you're an adult? Surely it's a problem forever. I'm glad you asked that. I, I have my notes for this one. So, typically people with porphyria actually experience an event that triggers it. Like what? So it can depend. Like like a full moon? No. Oh. No. So <laughs> people who have inherited some form of porphyria are basically a bit like, you know, with our Crohn's episode last time, you're prone to it. And then something needs to tip it over. But we have a better idea of what triggers it with porphyria. And this can include things like it's it's extreme stresses of some sort. So drugs. Mm -hmm. whether they be prescription ones or recreational or alcoholism, fasting or starvation, uh, infections, particularly uh, liver infections like hepatitis C or other severe infections like HIV, and severe stress. Okay, so basically anything. So your body is kind of coping the whole time, and then something happens to you that throws your body just out of whack a bit, and it can no longer cope with the extra porphyrins. Yeah, you, you just push it too hard. And your your liver's like, ah, I can't get rid of all of this. Yep. I'm busy. Yeah, and then you start experiencing symptoms. Okay. Wow. 
Another one that can cause it is hemochromatosis, because your body is already making these iron build up, and then that stresses the liver, and then that triggers the porphyria as well. That's unfortunate. Yeah, it is a bit. There are some other conditions that are associated with this porphyria. Like what? I know you don't tend to like this section so much, but this isn't, in general, the scariest one we've done. Uh, so if you have uh, the familial mutation, but you have two copies of it, then you can get what's called hepatoerythropoetic porphyria. Or, what a name! Or hep. And what that means is that... So hepato, liver, erythropoetic means like blood-making porphyria. And what you typically have in that is an earlier onset of symptoms. It's more severe. Uh, there are more liver symptoms in these patients, so they're more likely to get liver scarring, iron buildup, more severe cases, and it can be a harsher condition to deal with. And these cases are more likely going to need things like heme analogs. Okay. It can also cause a host of neurological disorders, again, because of the liver damage, as I mentioned earlier. Um, this is possibly due to neurological tissue damage from the anemia, um, or from potentially some of the damage from the light exposure and the effect it can have on you, or it could also, uh, or just the uh, toxic buildup from liver damage. Okay. And on that note, we will be taking a little break. History time! Yes, it's history time. I expect great things from you this week. This one's quite cool. So, we actually have quite an early medical description of Porphyria. Okay. 370 BC. No! Guess who did it? 370? Yeah. The guy that starts with an H. Yes. You make an oath. The doctors make an oath about. Hippocra- Hippocrates! Hippocrates. <laughs> I was like a Hippocratic oath. Yeah, Hippocrates. I do know how to say that. Yes, Hippocrates. Uh, he gave medical descriptions which are in keeping with Porphyria. That's so cool. We also have some other early texts that uh, seem to describe cases of Porphyria. Uh, interesting one is the Semitic text, the Book of Daniel. Really? Four. Uh, the way the description that's given of King Nebuchadnezzar in this, suggests that he had porphyria, and that the madness that was struck down on him was a part of the symptoms of porphyria. What? I need to go reread the Bible. So, the Book of Daniel itself is suspected to date somewhere between the 5th and 3rd century BC. Uh, it's also believed that Vlad Dracul III of Wallachia, or as you might know him as, or as a lot of people might know him as, Dracula, may have had acute porphyria which may have started the rumour that vampires can't tolerate the sunlight because uh, the uh, recordings of uh, Vlad that um, gave people the suspicion is that, one, he was known to drink the drink blood of his enemies and eat their flesh. This may not have just been intimidation tactics, but there were instances of him having a meal of someone's children in front of them in a field of uh, a field of impaled people drinking blood. I mean, don't know if it's true, but if so, hella intimidation tactic. No, he did do that. Right. According to what source? Um, his own soldiers. Again, we, I, I would let, let's not quibble. Vlad, Vlad, Vlad Dracul had um, because because he was. Uh, fighting on the borders with the uh, Ottoman Empire, he, he took an extremely brutal approach. So he, uh, there was an instance where some ambassadors came to his court. He told them to remove their turbans because in the Wallachian court you did not wear headwear. They refused to, so he nailed it to their heads and sent them back. Oh my gosh. Yeah. What a guy. He, he had a reputation for being extremely brutal. 
and he also fought almost exclusively at night. A lot of his battle tactics were night-driven, which in a forested area like Wallachia, which is uh, Transylvania in modern days, that makes a lot of sense anyway. So it could have just been very good tactical guerrilla guerrilla tactics, but it could also have been that given his other behaviours, that he may have had porphyria and that avoiding sunlight was preferable for him when it came to fighting. Dracula confirmed. Yeah. The uh, mental the mental decline of George III of England has also been linked to Porphyria. The Mad King. Yes, the Mad King. And there is some evidence to support this. So there are some, there are some cases where uh, a couple of his descendants may have had Porphyria. However, his great-great-grandson, Prince William of Gloucester, was actually reliably diagnosed with what's called variegate porphyria. The one I said was a very rare, extremely hereditary form. Mystery porphyria. No, no, this isn't part of the PCT oh. porphyria. This is a different porphyria. Okay. Uh, it's weirdly more common amongst Afrikaans people. Okay. But that suggests that it was in that lineage, so he could very well have had porphyria given the symptoms he had. But the only... Porphyric symptom I've heard about is just the the madness, I guess, the psychosis. Is there anything else? Quite possibly, but I there was a lot of information to go through, so I don't know all the details. And I come on, you need to be able to recite me a biography of George III. Come on. How am I supposed to give all the medical details of both um, Hippocrates' cases, King King Nebuchadnezzar, Vlad Dracul of Wallachia, and George III and his descendants? Try harder, and or, please, listeners, tell me where there's a book of all of this, or write me one. Thanks. Yeah, that'd be good. Please help me. (laughs) Did Hippocrates suggest a cure? I don't know. I want to check that out. Check if Hippocrates suggested a dumb cure. I mean, surely Pliny's the one that comes up with the really dumb cure. Also, yes, but like... Anybody writing before about 50 years ago is bound to have suggested a dumb cure. So it looks like the cases that Hippocrates found were specifically acute porphyria. I'm struggling to find anything that will actually give me access to the information, at least legally. So it's the Hippocratic case of Epidemics 3, um, case 11. And it says has recently been diagnosed as intermittent acute porphyria. Uh, despite the difficult retrospective diagnosis of ancient cases, it seems likely that Hipp- Hippocratic physicians empirically knew clinical associations of symptoms that modern medicine could consider as the first description of porphyria. I can't find if he actually made any suggestions for the curing of it, though. No, I can't. I can't find anything. If, if you find anything, let me know. I'm guessing you're also looking. But yeah, the the information is a little bit um, varied. Okay, sorry. So there was a interestingly that there was a modern, fairly modern outbreak of porphyria. Is outbreak the right word? In this case, yes. Is it contagious? No. So what happened was in Tur- in Turkey in 1960, there was this um, these uh, wheat fields that were treated with a fungicide called hexachlorobenzene, and this ended up being ingested by people because it ended up in the plants. And that triggered porphyria in 4,000 people. How? Remember how I said drugs can trigger porphyria if you're prone to it? Yeah. This fungicide was a chemical that could do that. So it was people already prone to porphyria? Yeah, so people would have had some sort of uh, predisposition that meant that they could have gotten porphyria. That's a lot of people. This this is throughout Turkey. Turkey's quite a big country. There are millions of people in Turkey. Still a lot of people. Yeah. And this is the reason why this fungicide became banned globally. Whoa. Because quite a few people die from this as well. This was awful what this fungicide ended up doing. And people didn't know it was in their food. So, yeah, that's a a bit of a modern one for uh, porphyria. It's kind of scary. So can we trace the mutation for porphyria? I suspect not. Not really, no. 
Um, so there have been lots of uh, mouse models that have been made for PCT, and these have been induced by using that fungicide. But there are no animal models, there are no like natural animals, animal models that exist with this uh, urod mutation in any other mammal than humans. So we couldn't trace it back by other species to say if there's like a common lineage of this propensity towards porphyria because it seems to be only humans. Okay, so only humans, as far as we know, did it. And because there are so many cases of random acquire uh, random acquisition of this case, it's very hard. And also a lot of these mutations anyway can happen randomly at some point. It's very hard to actually trace any sort of genetic lineage for this condition. Okay. Is there any specific populations it's more common in? It didn't seem to actually specify anything. It depended on the type of porphyria, but for PCT, no. So variegate porphyria, as I said before, is more common amongst Afrikaans people. And some of that would be probably that there was, uh, remember how I said about the founder effect, how a group moves somewhere and they become, and their population shrinks and then they start growing from a smaller gene pool? Mm-hmm. Well, Afrikaans are, uh, the Afrikaans and the Boer are typically an example of that from Dutch immigrants moving to South Africa. So they might have just multiplied this variegated porphyria? Yes. Okay. But for for Porphyria cutanea tarda, PCT? No, there doesn't seem to be anything like that. Anyone can have surprise Porphyria. Basically, yeah. Cool. So, nice spooky note, I guess. So, um, obviously the mutation's still around, partly because we don't understand what keeps it around and what stops it. If the symptoms don't get triggered until... If the symptoms have to be triggered, then people can have already had children before before they uh, get symptoms. And also, if it occurs randomly, it's not necessarily selected against. Makes sense. So there's plenty of reasons why Porphyria is still around and hasn't been selected out. Yeah. And also, in plenty of these cases, you know, there are ways to manage it. I mean, lead yourself a little bit and avoid sunlight for milder cases. Yeah. Excuses to stay inside. I'm here for it. Yeah, and I think, you know, right now a lot of people are happy to stay inside. <laughs> when was it characterised? What's the medical history of this? Besides the case of Hippocrates giving a description of Porphyria in the 3rd century BCE, the actual underlying mechanism for Porphyria was first described by the German physiologist and chemist Felix Hopsaler in 1871. Wow. Uh, Good job, buddy. He didn't name it after himself. Proud of him. But he's the one who gave it the name Porphyria from Porphyria, as we said earlier, meaning purple, because he saw that people who were having attacks of Porphyria had purple urine. So this was probably more acute Porphyria that he first characterized. (gasps) I figured out another mythical creature. Was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people leader. One-eyed, one-horned. Is, no. it, is this an American thing I don't know? <laughs> You're looking at me like I'm crazy. I mean, you are, but... <laughs> it's an important Halloween song. Okay, never mind. No, please explain to me. I'm very that's, confused. That, that's it. That's all. <laughs> I'm going to take this as an American thing. Um. Okay, so for those fans that are American, what is she talking about? It's a Halloween song. No, here it's not. Well, you guys are lame about Halloween. No, we just go a lot darker. No, you're just lame. Moving on. You guys like campy outfits. We like slasher films. We're just a lot darker. Boring. Darker. Boring. Hey, you've got to thank this nation for trick-or-treating. Thank you very much. Mm-mm. Scotland. Still part of this nation for them for the time. <laughs> still part of the UK. May not be for much longer, but currently still is. Anyway, moving away from the politics. In the 20th century, mental health disorders were uh, were heavily associated with porphyrias. So they noticed that the 
effects that porphyria had on the liver and things like that were affecting people's mental well-being. Oh. They may not put all of that together, but they noticed that mental health conditions and psychoses were more common in porphyric patients. Unfortunately, that takes us to the 1950s. Oh, everything goes wrong in the 1950s with mental health. Yep. Not that anything was great before, but... So in the 1950s, patients with porphyria who had severe depression were given electroshock therapy. Of course. That's what they did to everybody. Yeah, which for people who don't know, that's where they attach electrodes to the sides of your head and they electrocute you until you have a seizure. Lovely. Does have its medical uses today. Yes, in very, very severe cases of mental health problems. Not just for, like, general depression. <laughs> yeah, or as, the as, as was often the case in the 50s for mental health things, making people more manageable for everyone else rather than making them better. Uh... I'm very critical about mental health care in, in around that time, in the mid-20th century. Yeah, fair. So then later, in 1963, I thought this was quite interesting, there was a uh, paper that was published, which um, I'd recommend people read just to get a certain perspective, which is called On Porphyria and the Etiology of Werewolves. And this was published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society of Medicine. So this was uh, a paper that kind of retroactively looked at porphyria and, and kind of went, oh, look, this has some similarities to what we think of, as, what I think of in the mythology of werewolves. Did this maybe come from porphyria? And similar papers were then later written linking, linking porphyria to uh, vampirism in Europe. These have been contested more recently by uh, some folklorists and researchers as not accurately describing the characteristics of the original werewolf and vampire legends or the disease, and therefore potentially running the risk of uh, adding stigma to the condition. Funny how something published in a medical journal might not be the best place to go for studies of human mythology. Yeah, and their argument is that uh, Porphyria probably more likely shaped the 20th century view of the vampire werewolf rather than older myths of these creatures. For example, uh, Bram Stoker's Count Dracula, even going to then, uh, Dracula could walk into the could walk out in the sun. He was weakened, but he was never fearful of the sun. And plenty of older uh, vampire mythologies have no association with the vampires fearing the sun or staying away from the sun. Okay. So it's uh, more modern stories that we can think of where vampires tend to stay away from sunlight or tend to be hurt by sunlight. And therefore, the uh, case that these folklorists and researchers put, and, and medical historical researchers put forward is that Porphyria has shaped the more modern view of these mythological creatures, and that we've always had some view of these kind of creatures throughout our history, but they haven't always been shaped by Porphyria. That makes sense. Yeah, I thought that was quite quite cool. Yeah, it's it's really fun to imagine that like Porphyria is the cause of all of these legends, but that's probably a, a too simplistic view of it. The beginnings of mythologies are very, very hard to trace and come from lots of different sources and build over time. Yeah, and also vampires and werewolves are too ubiquitous a mythology, are too common really for something so rare as Porphyria to have influenced all of it. Yeah. Now we get to move on to the future. Okay. So there have been some gene therapy approaches being tested for porphyrias. But I thought we didn't know what gene it was half the time. Yeah, this, this is kind of part of the problem. So this has been done mainly for variegate porphyria, the one that I said that was very, very familial but very rare. And also uh, there's another type of porphyria, which I can't remember the acronym for. <laughs> um, but... They've been quite promising on cell cultures. So basically, they've gotten the uh, they've they've been growing the cells of patients and doing the gene gene editing on them. But that's really really early stage treatment. So we're a long way off from that being anywhere near a market. So and otherwise, these cases are fairly well managed. So there's and they're very rare. So there's not that much in the way of new treatments being developed. Yeah, there's already kind of good treatment there for those that can access it. 
yeah, it's not as compared to a lot of conditions, there's not as severe a price to be paid for the lack of research in this area. Which only really takes us to um how we go about trying to destigmatize this condition. I guess don't call your friend with Wolfuria a vampire? Yeah, yeah. unless unless they're going through a goth phase and they want to be referred to as one avoid vampire references. Bear in mind that patients do typically receive good treatment, so like, you know, don't start pitying someone or recommending treatments to them. Uh, don't hand them a flask of blood to drink. Yeah. Uh, avoid commenting on pigmentation of skin. I mean, that's probably just something people should do in general, because either you're making very awkward health comments or you're potentially making a racist comment. So just avoid skin pigmentation comments, full stop. And wear sunscreen, folks. Everybody. Yes. Um, as we said, avoid vampire and werewolf comments for people who have porphyria that they, they may they may take in good humor, but they could also be very hurtful. It could also just be very frustrating because, you know, a joke is only funny the first few times you hear it. If you hear it a thousand times, it gets very tiresome. And otherwise, educate yourself on the condition. It's, it's too rare for there to be a vast amount, number of misconceptions about it. So instead, just learn about uh, learn about what porphyria is and how you can help, and look into uh, groups such as the British Porphyria Association and the American Porphyria Association to see how you can help with both research and awareness. And if anybody wants to dive more into the history and email or tweet me good facts, please do so. Yes. And with that, we are at the end of the episode. So I just want to link again to that paper because. Um, of on porphyria and the ideology of werewolves by L. Illis, because although the uh, there, there are definitely some flaws in the links it makes with the mythology, it's definitely interesting to give a perspective on how people view porphyria and how people have viewed um, werewolves in the 20th century. Otherwise, definitely check out the uh, British Porphyria Association and the American Porphyria Association for extra information. And please let us know if you find any cool history on this. If you want to get in touch with your good facts, email us at geneticdriftpodcast at gmail.com. Start a discussion on our Facebook group or tweet us at geneticdrift1. Yes, definitely. Now, the music for this podcast, as with every episode, is produced by William Kitchener Music, so please check that out. And otherwise, just like to say, withhold your judgment because you can't see the genes, so don't expect to see the illness. Happy Halloween! Happy Halloween!